The best confidence builder is having success. So you have some success on those first couple deals, build your capital reserves a little bit, build your reputation, your track record, and then you can attract maybe some more capital, get to know some banks and and banks are willing to lend on some of those flips. And so that's that's really how we got started there. This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will teach you how to build wealth with real estate without buying yourself another job. I'm your host, Taylor Lote, and today our guest is my friend, Jonathan Hayek. Jonathan is a successful real estate investor who started as a special education teacher. He decided that he didn't like the trajectory that he was on financially as a special education teacher, and he started flipping real estate. Over the course of just a couple of years, he created financial freedom, and today he is a full-time real estate investor who is focused on building a portfolio that enables him to live the life that he wants to live. Today, we learn about his story, tough decisions and tough situations that he got into along the way, along the path to create financial freedom, and then what his life and investments are like today as a full-time real estate investor who is focused on building a portfolio that will enable him to be a present father and a present husband. I love that so much. He's a very inspiring person, an inspiring figure, and we learned some pretty tough lessons today that he learned throughout his real estate investing career. You're going to love it. You're going to learn so much with us today. Just hang in with us. Once again, I'm your host, Taylor Lotz. I'm a real estate investor, and I focus on multifamily and self-storage investing. To date, I've acquired, partnered on, or had a hand in over $250 million of commercial real estate acquisitions. If you'd like to learn more about potentially investing with us on a future deal, just go to investwithtaylor.com or click the link in the show notes. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every weekday. Now, let's get with Jonathan. Jonathan, great to talk with you once again. For our listeners out there who don't know about you, your journey, and what you're up to today, tell us about what you're doing these days, and then we'll rewind the clock and learn how you achieved financial freedom through real estate. Sure. Taylor, I am thrilled to be here. I'm a big fan of the podcast. I'm a big admirer of you as a host and um, what you're doing in real estate, so it's a real pleasure to be here. I started my professional uh, working life as a special education teacher. So I taught special ed for eight years, also dabbled in the non-for-profit world for a couple of years. I worked on an Indian reservation in Arizona. I went, my wife and I went overseas to New Zealand for a period of time. I picked apples in New Zealand, came back to the United States, and we were newly married at that point, and I needed a job. So went back to teaching. And at one point, I told my wife that we just weren't going to be high-income earners. I, I said, Allison, you know, we're just not going to make very much money. And, you know, I sat with that for a while, and I was ultimately just not satisfied with that fact. And as a special ed teacher, we need teachers and we need people in that field. But what my wife and I wanted for our lives was freedom, freedom of time, financial freedom, geographical freedom. We love to travel and working on a teacher salary and my wife working for a non-for-profit at the time was just not going to get our family where we wanted to go. And in 2016, 
We got into real estate. I started flipping houses and turned the profits of the house flips into small multifamily properties. And in 2019, the business had reached a point where I was able to stop teaching. And I stopped teaching in June of 2019. And at that point, the the plan was to build an empire of small multifamily properties. And as I as I continued acquiring small multifamily properties, I think I eventually got up to 20 or 22 units. And I was at a point where I needed to get bigger properties or seriously scale. And I decided that I did not want to build uh, an empire of small multifamily properties for all of the reasons that you and the listeners can imagine. And I, I knew I wanted to get bigger properties. And so I just kind of explored and got educated on what other possibilities there were besides multifamily. And I've settled on the non-residential commercial real estate world. And so I bought an office building at one point and leased that up. And now I'm really pursuing the industrial asset class. And yeah, so those are the things that I'm really looking at right now. So much to cover there. Very inspiring story. And to rewind back to those first couple of flips. So that conclusion of we're not going to make a lot of money in our lives and not being okay with it and taking action is great. But where did you come up with the funds to do those initial flips to put yourself on the path to financial independence? I was scrappy. I still am scrappy. So the first flip, even before the first flip, our first personal residence we had was purchased at an auction. It was through auction.com. And at those online auctions, you have to pay in cash. And so we saw this opportunity in the town in which we were living. And we ended up winning the auction for $135,000. We have to pay that in cash within 30 days. I didn't have $135,000. I had At the time, I had $10,000 to my name, and that was from an inheritance from my grandmother who had recently passed away. So I had a friend who had told me that, hey, you know, I have this retirement account, and if you're looking to do real estate deals, I'm looking to use my retirement account to invest in real estate deals so I could lend you the money, and you pay me interest, and you pay the capital back, pay my investment back when you refinance the property. I had this in the back of my head, and so that's what I did. I was able to get private money for that first deal and rehabbed it mostly myself, refinanced it, paid him back. The first flip we did was just so scrappy. It was like, you know, it was, I was listening to Bigger Pockets at the time, and it was just check the couch cushions, check the check the cup holders in the car. So that first flip I bought, I think, for $67,000 from a wholesaler. And we used, I think we used balance transfer money from credit cards. We used, at that point, we probably had a little bit of money in savings. It was super scrappy, stuff like that. And then, you know, the best confidence builder is having success. So you have some success on those first couple deals, build your capital reserves a little bit, build your reputation, your track record. And then you can attract maybe some more capital, get to know some banks, and and banks are willing to lend on some of those flips. And so that's that's really how we got started there. Wow. At what point did you realize it was 2019 that you could leave your job and, and stop teaching? Like, what did that look like from a realization standpoint, but also financially? You know, how did that shape up? It was a very opportune time to stop teaching because we all know in 2020, COVID struck and teachers did not have a very pleasant experience during COVID. So I am so grateful that I did not have to go 
through the education experience during COVID. So what that looked like was in 2019, we were not financially free, but we were having some success flipping and we had some passive income coming in through some small multifamily properties. So it was really a calculated decision. We wanted those freedoms that I mentioned earlier. And so it was a discussion with my wife. We decided about six months before the end of the school year that that was going to be my last school year. And it was really a, you know, I took inspiration from the four-hour work week where Tim Ferriss talks about when you're when you're contemplating these difficult decisions, what's the worst that could happen? And actually go through the process of, you know, truly what's the worst that could happen. And, you know, we we sat down and we had this discussion and we had a runway fund. And so the inspiration for that runway fund came from Scott Trench's book, Set for Life. And so basically the runway fund was a 12-month runway. We took our annual expenses, which at the time was somewhere around $50,000. So we set $50,000 aside in a separate savings account. We said, okay, this is the money that we need to live on for the rest of the year. If we get to the next school year and this money's gone and we have no other income, then I go back to teach. And so really that was what we decided. That was the worst case scenario was I go back to teach. Our entrepreneurial in- endeavors didn't work out, and and I go back to teach. You know that's that's not all that bad of an outcome. Fortunately, it did work out. We did not exhaust that runway fund, and I've been employed in full time real estate since that point. That's great, and I really appreciate how throughout this journey you've taken lessons from podcasts that you were listening to and books that you were reading, and really truly put them to use in your investments and and your mindset and your business and everything. What was one of the first big lessons that you learned as a full-time real estate investor after you had left, made this commitment? Imagine maybe you fell on your face once or twice. It happens to all of us. So what was one of those big lessons you learned? The importance of due diligence. I think, you know, a lot of real estate investors can maybe relate to this idea of when you have some success, and things are going your way, you feel a little bit invincible. You feel like, hey, I've got this. I know how to do this. Nothing can go wrong. I've got my numbers down. You know, I nothing's bad going to happen. Nothing bad is going to happen. And, you know, maybe some investors over the last couple of years are now learning some of those hard lessons. One of my hard lessons came in a single family flip from, I think it was 2019. And I, looking back on it, I was feeling a little bit cocky at the time. It was kind of a classic acquisition. It was, you know, a, the owner had passed away. It was their kids selling the house. It was a house full of junk. I bought a lot of these houses, and this was just another one. And so I acquired it. And soon after I acquired it, it started raining and raining a lot. And in the basement, water started coming in, and it just kept coming and coming. And there was no sump pump in the basement. And I felt very helpless. There's no way to get this water out. So I brought my own sump pump in and and had the hose going out the back door up the basement stairs. And as soon as I would pump out the basement, it would just fill back up with water, six, eight, 12 inches of water. And I was like, man, this was supposed to be a really easy flip. And so just feeling very helpless. I was over at this house up to two times a day trying to pump the basement out with water. And meanwhile, it just keeps raining. Water keeps coming in. So I eventually hire a plumber. 
to put a sunken sump pump in the basement. It helped, but it didn't cure the problem. And so I, you know, I thought through like, okay, well, should I start doing rehabs upstairs and just hope that this basement issue is going to take care of itself? No, that didn't seem like a good strategy. So I just waited. Eventually, it stopped raining and the basement dried out. But I was not comfortable moving forward with this project, knowing, well, just knowing that there were so many unknowns with the basement. So I ended up selling the property for a loss, and I had investor capital on that. And so I had, I had private money that they, a friend had lent me for the purchase and rehab. And since I only do debt deals, my investor got all of his capital back plus all of his returns. I personally lost money on the deal. When I sold the property, I disclosed the water issue. I, you know, I submitted a, a signed disclosure with the contract. So the buyer was, was another investor. The buyer was well aware of the water issue. I had receipts for all the work that I had done. And it was just a, it was a scenario where looking back on it, there probably would have been red flags if I had maybe taken some more time and due diligence, inspected the basement a little more, maybe checked for signs of water in the basement. There may have been signs of mold, things like that. So it was really a uh, situation of learning that it's okay to cut your losses at some point. So don't throw good money after bad and double down on due diligence. Even if you feel like some of those due diligence items are unnecessary, whether it's, you know, now that I'm in commercial stuff, whether it's doing maybe a little extra environmental or some extra HVAC and roof inspections, the peace of mind and the potential information that will come from those inspections are well worth the expense versus just, you know, going with a hope and a prayer and just, you know, hoping that everything will turn out okay. Wow. Well, that sounds like a very painful experience. And really, the the way you told it, I felt like I was right there with you happening. And I really felt the pain there. But so very important uh, lessons out of that. So now let's switch to looking forward. You mentioned you've gotten into commercial real estate investing. You bought an uh, office building, got that leased up, but decided to move on from offices to fo focus on industrial. So let's start at why did you buy the office building? How did that deal work? And then talk about industrial. I was looking to shift out of small multifamily. My family was growing. I now have two little girls and the idea of continuing to flip houses, um, flipping houses is a very intensive business. It's capital intensive. It is time intensive. It is deal finding intensive. There's just a lot involved in flipping houses. And as I was really focusing on being a present father and a present husband, I did not want to be spending 40 to 60 hours a week on my house flips. In addition to that, the small multifamily stuff, as, as you and listeners might imagine, small multifamily stuff, when things are going well, it's great. But when things are not going well, that can be intensive to just lots of management involved and, and, and all those kinds of things. And so there is this office property in my town that had been on the market for probably nine months. And it was really intriguing because I'm coming from the small multifamily world. 
This office property was probably 5,000 square feet, and it was already divided into a bunch of small individual offices. What I was imagining was I could take my skills from the small multifamily world of knowing how to rehab, do cosmetic updates, and lease up properties, and just do it with this office building. This broker I was working with was saying, I get calls all the time for people looking for just small offices. This was, you know, we're kind of in the tail end of COVID. It's early, late 2021 that I'm looking at this property. And as I'm talking about this and my three-year-old just just walks into my office, working from home can be a challenge for a lot of people. <laughs> and, you know, one lesson that a lot of people learned from COVID is that the idea of work from home sounds great, but the execution and in practice is really challenging because as you have all these distractions, um, you know, whether it's chores and laundry and stuff like that or kids, it can be really hard to work from home. This office building had about 12 individual offices and So I did some cosmetic updates, you know, fairly basic things like paint. And then in a lot of the offices, I did like an accent shiplap wall just to kind of make it attractive and trendy for a small business owner to walk in and, you know, say, okay, yeah, I can I can see myself working here. I included utilities. I included wireless Internet. So I just made it a one price deal for someone to walk in with their small business, whether it was a psychologist or therapist or a masseuse or a tech person, someone that just needs a space away from home. I offered 24-hour access through through a fob, and it worked out well. So I held that property for about 18 months, leased it up, and was able to sell it off to another investor for, you know, for a nice profit. It wasn't, I took it down myself. I, I didn't have any investors on it because it was, you know, kind of an experiment for me. So that was the motivation behind that office building. I am not interested in buying office buildings anymore for a lot of the same reasons that that I'm not interested in small multifamily anymore. It can be it can be time intensive. Finding tenants can be challenging. These are mom and pop tenants. These are not national credit tenants. So it can be challenging to find these tenants and it can be management intensive. And so now I'm looking at what would be what some would call flex space. So sir, kind of on the smaller side, single tenant in the eight to 10 to 20,000 square foot range. And so these are properties with a small office area, a large warehouse, and often a large yard. These are triple net leases, tenants that really want this property. They're no frills properties, and they're, they're easy to maintain, unlike the small multifamily. So now that I've got the Young family, the lower management properties are are really what's attractive to me right now. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So when you think about it in terms of beginning with the end in mind, looking for the lower management intensity properties and an investment strategy makes a lot of sense. But on the flip side, are you potentially giving up returns and giving up the ability to create and drive value? Like, How are you approaching that from the investment and business strategy side to create the back end, you know, goal of less management intensity, but you still need an opportunity, right? Absolutely. And I am not sacrificing returns by moving to this other asset class. Truthfully, it would have been really hard to leave the small multifamily world if I could continue finding deals. Towards the beginning of my investing journey, 2016, 2017, 2018, 
I was buying 1% deals off the MLS. It was, I mean, I don't want to say it was easy, but it was like something would come up and I'd make an offer and I'd get it. And it's a 1% value add deal with below market rents and bathrooms and kitchens that needed to be upgraded. And so it was like, okay, I, I had the formula. Then, you know, 2020 and 2021 came and it just became really challenging to find these deals. I would I found some off-market deals, but those 1% MLS deals were non-existent. And I think today they're still non-existent, at least in the markets that I'm looking at. So it was really a product of building a new skill set. So a lot of people are scared of office space and flex space because they just don't know what goes into it. How do you add value to a flex building? How do you add value to an office building? Isn't office and the toilet, isn't it? Isn't office scary right now? So it was really more of learning a new skill set for how do I add value and make money in different asset classes. Okay. So how do you add value and make money specifically in the industrial space? Yeah. So what I look for are expiring leases, below market rents, and a really desirable property. I'll, I'll give you some examples. Earlier this year, I closed on a property, a single tenant, flex building, small office. It's about the whole property is about 9,000 square feet. About 1,500 square feet of that is office. The rest is warehouse. There's also a very large yard. It's about an acre and a half of property. The tenant had been there for about 20 years, and they had six months left on the lease. For industrial properties, the value oftentimes is in the lease. A lot of these properties can have five, 10, or even longer year leases. And those are really stable, kind of predictable properties. They're triple net leases. And if you've got a great tenant, it's really stable and predictable cash flow. If you only have six months left on the lease, a lot of investors get concerned. They think, well, what if this tenant leaves? What if I buy this property and I'm left with a vacant property? That's where I see opportunity. That's where the quality asset comes into play. I don't want to buy just any property with an expiring lease. I want to make sure that it's a desirable property with you know the appropriate amount of doors, the appropriate amount of yard space, the right location. And so this property was really kind of a perfect, you know, kind of a, a perfect combination of all of that. The tenant fortunately wanted to stay and they had below market rents. So I was able to get a new five-year lease with, with rents that are increasing a healthy amount over the next couple of years. And so I've now have a stabilized property with a great tenant. And a lot of people ask, well, why would a seller sell a property if that's kind of like the, the lowest that that property is going to be worth? Why would the seller sell? And because the seller was not an investor. The seller had had this property for 30 years. The seller used to have his own business in this property. And he was retired and he wasn't concerned about getting a new lease. That that wasn't his priority. And so he wanted to unload it. And I was there to make an aggressive cash offer. And I was able to make it a no-hassle close and, and close on a great asset. Okay, wow. In your own estimate, because of the expiring lease and under market rent and everything, how much of a discount approximately did you get on the property? I bought the property for $750,000. 
after I signed the new five-year lease, I'm going through a refinance right now because the formula at, you know, at this point is buy it for cash, get a new lease with increased rents, and then refinance, refinance my money out, do it all over again. I'm in the process of a refinance. I haven't had the appraisal yet, but I'm guessing it's going to appraise for somewhere around $1.2 million. Nice. Okay. So what kind of LTV and you know, DSCR and everything, what kind of metrics are you looking at there? Are you going to be able to get all 750 back out? I should be able to. I'm asking, I'm working with a broker. I'm asking the broker for 75% LTV, five-year term, rate-wise, I don't know where I'm going to be. I'm hoping somewhere around 7%. We'll see where the term sheets come back up. Interesting. Wow. So it's fascinating that you were able to pivot asset classes twice and be successful with it both time times, although finding frustrations with the office strategy in particular. But it sounds like you're going to stick with the industrial strategy moving forward. I really like industrial properties for a couple of reasons. First reason, I already talked about the low management aspect of it, especially these single tenant properties. With triple net leases, the tenant is responsible for virtually everything. You could definitely make an argument that multi-tenant properties are better, that it could reduce risk. I, I grant that, and that's a perfectly fine strategy. I'm really looking to reduce my management. And so when you have a multi-tenant property, you can bill back a lot of the common area expenses, but either you as the owner or property manager is still responsible for things like landscaping and snow removal. I really don't want to be responsible for those things. I don't want to be getting calls from tenants saying, hey, you know, the snow plow hasn't showed up yet. Can you check on it? I don't want to have any part of that versus single tenant property. All of that stuff is on the tenant. I'm still probably going to be responsible for things like roof, structure, maybe underground plumbing. I'm totally fine with that. You have to replace a roof, what, once every 15 or 20 years. I'm willing to take that on. And so the low management aspect is really what I like about it. The second thing I really liked about, like about these single-tenant flex buildings are the, the incredible demand. If you're in the right market, some of these properties are going away for a better use, like multifamily or retail. There is so little of this asset being built right now. Basically, zero single-tenant flex space is coming online, but yet we have this growing demand for blue-collar workers like cabinet makers and plumbers and electricians and landscaping companies. Those workers, those jobs are not going to be farmed out to Amazon or overseas if anything, we're going to have an increased need for those things. And those workers need a place to work and they need space. And so if you can get a quality asset with some of those amenities that I talked about with the outdoor storage space and, and drive-in doors and nice office space, things like that, I think you're going to uh, be doing really well as long as you're in a, in a market with, with low vacancy. Wow. Okay. So very well thought through and you've transitioned over from the hustle and grind investing. Hello. For those that are not on the video, his, his daughter has now joined us in, in frame. So that's great. You've transitioned into a lifestyle investing strategy from the hustle and grind flip investing, but the flips got you to where you are today. So very inspiring. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? 
I'm ready. Great. First one, what is your number one book recommendation? Recently, a powerful book that I read is How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. It's a classic. I'm a little embarrassed to say that I just read it within the last month for the first time, but really powerful book, basic strategies, but something that as I grow my business, I'm going to have every employee read. Great. Great choice. We had question number one. Now we go to question number two. Who or what inspires you? Such a great question. I am inspired by people that live life on their terms, that know how to give back, that know how to inspire others, and can live life on their terms in a kind and respectful and thoughtful way. Nice. like that. My favorite question here at the end of the show is, think about yourself at 80 years old. If you had the opportunity to speak with yourself when you're 80 to yourself today, what advice would 80-year-old you give to Jonathan of today? Don't sacrifice time with your family and friends and doing things that you enjoy. There's a time to grind, and you should know when it's time to grind, but you should also know when it's time to stop and enjoy your life and be be with the people that matter most and doing the things that matter most. I love it. Thanks so much for joining us today. If folks want to learn more about you or find you on the internet, where can they track you down? I also have a podcast. Taylor, you were a guest on it not too long ago. And so the intention of that podcast is I interview experts in non-residential commercial real estate. So experts in office, retail, industrial, and we get market updates and insights into how to add value to those asset classes. Name of my podcast is The Source of Commercial Real Estate. So you can check that out and connect with me on LinkedIn. Awesome. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying this show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I appreciate that so much. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every weekday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day, and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.